Good morning. All right, we want to welcome you to Parkside Bible Fellowship. Glad you're here. It's a uh, exciting times as we kind of have our finish of Resurrection Sunday. If Dale's saying turn it up, I will not take my mask off, so we're going to have to sound booth this. You getting her, Brian? You're squinting. I got reading glasses. We can help that part. Any better? How's that? There you go. All right. See that little knob that says 0 to 10? Put it on 11 and we're good to go. So, All right. Well, we're glad you're here this morning. It's exciting times. We're glad you're here as far as online. We're getting closer. Vaccines are out there. We encourage that. It's a, uh, we're getting closer. And it's been a, a uh, kind of a, it's been a year for sure. And the Lord is with us. We know that. If you take your bulletin, we have several items going on. First is the Resource Center. It's the last announcement, and there's a, there's a book there. There's lots of details for it. Uh, it's, it's not worth reading for me to you. It's worth you looking at this and stopping by. While you're there, drop your email by. If you aren't getting our email prayer requests and our Thursday updates, we definitely want to hear from you. Also coming up, we've got the uh, summer camp. There's a little bit of detail here in a second, but more importantly is if you can help out with scholarships. Put on your, uh, your monetary gift on your envelope or your check camp scholarship for those that may not be able to afford. And if you'd like to drive, it's a ways up to Cowboys Rest, about 250 miles one way. And so, you know, it's not easy, but it is doable. And if you can help, just get a hold of Stephen. His email's in here or get a hold of him at the office. Also, the blood drive coming up on the 24th, 9 to 2. Uh, where's Christy? Christy, can we still sign up? Tell a foyer or to you? All right, so you can get online and sign up. It's very important if you sign up. That would be great. And drop-ins are, are welcome but not encouraged. We want you to sign up and get a place. And then coming up on the summer bake sale. So the, the handout here next weekend we're going to have succulent sweets, copious amounts of caffeine, four of the basic food groups, sugar, fat, flour, and caffeine, so that's good. And uh, you'll be all set there. Maybe go for a run right after. But if you can help out next weekend, bring a, little, bring a few bucks and take away some treats. Thank you, Monty. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I'd like to ask you to stand for our call to worship and prayer. Before I read this passage, I want to share this thought. Our worship is not a response to how Jesus makes us feel. Our worship is a response to Jesus' worth, regardless of how we feel. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. 
Heavenly Father, we bow before You. Lord, we thank You that You are the one true God. And right now, Lord, we, we humble ourselves before You. We humble ourselves to say thank You for who You are and for Your great work. And we pray that You would help us in worshiping You here this morning. Help us, Lord, to push aside the distractions. There's nothing, there's nothing better and there's nothing greater than what we enter into do right now. So help us, dear Lord, to do this from the heart and to rely on You each step of the way. Be glorified in our time, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Oh 
walking by faith, you won't be shaken. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. And at this time, we have a special number. John Billet and Bill Christoph. Why me, Lord, what have I done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I do deserve all the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am, and now that I know that I needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in And for taking my place on that old rugged cross. Maybe, Lord, I can tell someone else what I've been through myself on that road back to you. Lord, help me, Jesus. Wasted it so help me Jesus I know what I am and now that I know that I needed you so help me Jesus my soul's in
that. Here uh, at this time, we'd like to uh, highlight a little book, and uh, then we'll have Stephen lead us in prayer. And um, it's my privilege to uh, uh, shine a little light on this little book. It's called Note to Self. I wouldn't laugh. It hurts to read it. But it's a good hurt. Uh, each little uh, chapter, and they are, they're just devotionally speaking, it, it starts with dear self. And then it, it speaks truth. And it's a reminder to speak truth to your heart. It's a reminder to speak the gospel to yourself. Uh, so many of us just figure, oh, I, I, I'm a believer, I'm going to heaven. And uh, we don't take time to just remind ourselves of the basic things that will help solidify the foundation of our lives. And that is in Jesus Christ. Um, just real quickly, uh, dear self, take note. Your view of Jesus tends to shrink over time. Okay? Your shrinking Jesus becomes small Jesus. He is easily eclipsed by your ego, by your idols and your ego. Enough said. It's a very good devotional book. I encourage you to consider getting it. There's some at the table and the resource there. Note to Self by Joe Thorne. I have a book uh, to recommend. This one has pictures. So, uh, this one's called Big Truths for Little Kids. Uh, this is kind of in our rotation at home. It's a great uh, resource. Uh, the way it's organized is it starts off uh, with each chapter is a, um, one or a few catechism questions. Now, if, if you're like me, I used to think that catechism was just a, a Catholic thing, but really it's just a, a means of teaching through questions and answers. So uh, each chapter starts with a, a question and answer that has to do with uh, what Scripture teaches. So, for instance, the first chapter, if I can figure that out, says, Who made you? And the answer is, God. And so it goes through different things that the Bible teaches. It's a great, uh, especially for parents and, or aunts and grandparents, can be hard to know where to start. You know, what, what do I teach my kids uh, in terms of the Bible? And so this is a great resource for that. And then after the, those questions and answers, it has a little uh, story that follows these kids, and, and the story uh, usually uh, links in with 
those questions and answers. And then it ends off with uh, some discussion questions, a, a thing to pray for. So it's just helpful to provide a framework um, as you're working through with kids or grandkids or um, anything like that. Uh, one kind of, I put it in the bulletin, just one side note. Chapter 33 uh, in the book, the, the author believes in infant baptism. So if you just want to skip over chapter 33, we, we at Parkside are uh, believe in believer's baptism. So just a little side note on that. But uh, as I like to say, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, some people got it. <laughs> uh, also, uh, we recommended this book a couple months ago. We sold out of it a lot quicker than I thought that we would. So we have more of this is in stock, Theology or Theology. It's another good uh, resource to check out for, for kids. Um, and then, sorry, you're stuck with me for a little while here. I just want to note there's some changes for our family worship guide. Uh, so we switched. Uh, the song is, we're going to have the same song for two weeks. Now just to make it easier to actually learn and, and memorize the song for, well, my, my son always learns it quicker than I do, but uh, for the kids and adults. And then if you look at the questions down here, um, in Sunday school, the, the little kids are going, starting to go through, it's a catechism for girls and boys. And so that question that they went over, uh, is there. So this morning, the question was, who made you? And the answer is, God made me. And then it has scripture references that you can look at together. And then uh, below that, the the uh, students, middle school and high school, we're going through is called the Baptist Catechism. I call it beefy questions, meaty answers, um, because they're pretty pretty beefy questions. That's That's the only adjective I can think of for that. And so that follows along with what we're doing in there. All right, enough about that. Uh, our highlight for this week, we're highlighting Cowboys Rest. Uh, obviously a, a dear ministry for us here at Parkside. Um, they have some praise reports. They're thankful for good moisture uh, and just for the generous donations that, that have been flooding through, especially with the COVID year, just things uh, not being normal in terms of their funding. They're very appreciative of that, so we want to praise God for that. And then this Saturday, they're, they're going to have a day of prayer and fasting uh, for the upcoming camp season. Uh, and along with that, there's this prayer guide, prayer guide that I believe is available at the Welcome Center. You can pick up just specific things that we can be praying uh, for for Cowboys Rest. Um, so we want to lift them up in prayer. Uh, this morning, we're going to pray specifically just for God's provision for Cowboys Rest, for counselors, for medical support, personnel, all the rest. Uh, we're going to pray for just God's protection over the camp and the campers while they're there. And then we're going to pray for uh, fruitfulness, that the gospel would go forth, that uh, campers would be saved, that uh, Christian kids would be strengthened in their faith. And so we want to uh, lift them up. So let's go ahead and, and do that. Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We have uh, no hope apart from you and, and your work, Lord. We thank you for the strong foundation that we have in Christ. Thank you for uh, 
things like Cowboys Rest, Lord, we thank you for the heart uh, of the board and the helpers, the volunteers. Thank you for uh, using Cowboys Rest uh, throughout the many years, Lord. We pray for your continued grace on them. Pray that you give uh, the board wisdom as they continue to move forward. Pray that you would please provide for Cowboys Rest, for, for counselors and the staff that they need. Pray for your protection over uh, the camp from just various things. And pray for your protection over the campers while they're there, that, that the kids would just be safe and have fun, Lord. And most importantly, we pray, Father, that, uh, that the gospel would go forth, Lord, that uh, those in attendance would see their need for Christ, that they would cling to Christ. We pray that the kids... Uh, there who have already put their faith in Christ would be strengthened in their faith, Lord, that Christ would be lifted up so that the campers can see the glory of your grace and your mercy uh, displayed in Christ. Father, we also uh, pray for uh, Missy, just for her uh, C-section coming up tomorrow. Pray for a safe delivery of that baby and uh, that you keep mommy safe, Lord. Pray for uh, Pam Wickheiser just says she's going to get a second opinion uh, with with her knee in California. Pray for good news on that front, Lord. Pray that you would continue to please comfort her, Lord, and and help her to to fixate her eyes on on you, Lord. And Father, we uh, just want to praise you too, Lord, for uh, Charlie being able to go home. We thank you for that. And uh, we praise you for that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In so many ways, uh, you and I continue to think, I can do it. I got this. I got the answer. I got the solution. But the work of God in sanctification is to show you more and more of the strength of our Savior. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in His grace. Be strong in faith. Faith in Christ. And so that we would all, as believers, say it over and over again. Yet not I, but Christ.
children may be dismissed for junior church in the fellowship hall. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 12. Yes, I said Romans 12. We are moving on. I'm going to read for us this morning verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning and worship you. We worship you, calling to mind who you are, that you have created us and given us life and being. You have sustained us, and you have redeemed us in Christ. So we worship you and we give you honor this morning. Father, we are grateful for all that we have learned, all that we have studied together, all that we have meditated on and spent the last 11 chapters digging into your grace and goodness towards us. The mercy that is ours in Christ. This salvation that brings us into right relationship with you. We praise you. And we worship you this morning. And Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would help us to engage, help us to understand to hear from your word. We pray that your spirit would work in us, even as we have your word open before us. We trust you. We look for you. We pray that you would work in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we kicked off the book of Romans a little over two years ago now. And so we have been here, uh, for some it seems like much longer than that, and uh, for some it seems like it's been such a brief time, but it's been a little over two years, and we have worked through the first 11 chapters, uh, focusing, as Paul does, on doctrine. That not exclusively, but for the most part, the first 11 chapters have to do with doctrine, have to do with teaching have to do with what we are to believe. And so we've 
discuss some things that maybe we've never thought about before. We talked about being in Adam versus being in Christ. We've talked about uh, different aspects of this salvation, how it comes to us, and uh, about our own lostness and our own inability, our own sin. We've talked about these things in a systematic and a thorough fashion, but they've been primarily doctrinal, talking about teaching. And that's been for 11 chapters. And some of us, some of us prefer doctrine. We like to think about these ideas and these concepts. We like to ponder and understand. We're sort of, uh, we gravitate maybe towards theology and we like to think in these terms. And so for us, for, for uh, those who uh, prefer doctrine, like to think doctrinally, it's been a, a, a pleasant 11 chapters as we get to think about things that are deeply important to us. And there are others who much prefer the application, the practical. There are those of us who like to think about what this means for how I'm going to live my life tomorrow and next year. What's the practical implication for my life? There are those of us who live in that realm where we we think about those practical application aspects. What's the significance in my life? What does it mean for Christian ethics? What does it mean for how I live my day-to-day life? So we have some who prefer doctrine, some who live in that realm and, and, and tend to think that, and we have those who prefer practical application and tend to live in that realm and think about those aspects. Well, the question we have today is how do those two relate to one another? Doctrine and ethics. Teaching and practice. What we learn about God and what we learn about salvation and what we learn about those types of topics, how does that relate to my life and how I'm to live, how I'm to walk, how I'm to relate to others? How do those two things relate to one another? Well, today in these verses, we have Paul shifting from the teaching that he's been giving us for 11 chapters in depth, the most in-depth teaching we have in Scripture and lengthy and thorough teaching we have in Scripture on the Gospel. That's been doctrinal. There's been, there's been aspect here and there where we talk about uh, commands, we talk about practical application, how this brushes against our life. It's, it's not to exclude those things in those first 11 chapters. But primarily it's been about teaching. And we come to these verses today and we have a transition We've had lots of transitions in the book of Romans. We've transitioned from this topic to the next topic. We've transitioned from discussing this thing over here to discussing something related or or maybe not so closely related in the next section. But today we have the most significant transition in the entire book. Where Paul is going to transition with us. He's going to take us from this in-depth discussion of all of this doctrine... And he's going to pivot and he's going to say, and here's the significance in your life. Here's the practical application. Here's now what this means for us. And so you can't really overstate the importance of these two verses. And in fact, I was looking at uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and he spent a whole lot longer in Romans than we will spend in Romans. 
he uh, he actually was counting that uh, it was something like 297 verse uh, uh, sermons before he got to chapter 12. <laughs> some of you are shaking your head. And some of you are glad I didn't know that number before I started because I might have, you know, tried to beat him. But, but his, his point was, in all of that time, in all of looking at that, we now come to a place where we transition to this new point and start talking about, okay, so what? So what? What's the application? What's the point in my own life? And so we come to our passage today in a, a sermon that I've entitled, A Gospel-Formed Mind. A Gospel-Formed Mind. That I believe the point of what Paul is saying, the point of this transition, is that he's saying you've learned so much about the gospel. Now let it shape you. Forming your mind for how you are to live. Because doctrine has implications. That if we are those who like to discuss doctrine and, and we like to leave that discussion and go away and live our lives without reference to doctrine, we have missed the point. That if we leave the discussion of God and what He's like, if we leave behind the discussion of what salvation is and how he brings it to us and we go away and there's 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 no residue of that left in our life there's no shaping of our lives then then we've been discussing a, a dead orthodoxy we've been talking about philosophical concepts that might be interesting and curious that's not real doctrine real doctrine has implications in our lives, shapes how we think and shapes how we live. And I believe what is happening here is he is talking about a gospel revolution. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He starts with, therefore. That's not the first word. But logically, it's the word that's the hinge. It's the turn. We've looked at all of this doctrine. Therefore, it means something for us. It means something in our lives. I like to ask the question, wherefore the wherefore? Or, as Bob Burroughs puts it, what's the therefore therefore? And anytime you see that word therefore... You ought to underline it in your, in your Bible or at least in your mind. You ought to know that, that we are talking about a conclusion being drawn. Statements have been made before. Arguments have been presented before. And they mean something. So in light of all of these arguments, in light of these statements, therefore, here's the significance. Here are the implications. Here are the conclusions that we're drawing. Therefore is an important word. And he says... In light of all of this teaching that's gone before, in light of this doctrine that we have, in light of what Paul has teased out for us in, in detail, examining every nook and cranny and little corner, in light of that, therefore, what does it mean? Well, I think he's summarizing the entirety of what has come before. That... 
that we could summarize for the purposes of our short time here that, first of all, we are justified by faith. That's something that he has driven home. He has developed that. He's made that plain to us. And we have forgiveness of sins through Christ's atoning work. That's how we have forgiveness. That's how it comes to us. That's how it's acquired for us. We learned also that God works all things together for our good. He has the authority to do so. He has the power to do so. He has the sovereignty to be able to do so. That He works all things together for the good of the Christian. And fourthly, that He calls people to Himself. This is the salvation that He has provided for us. And I call this a revolution because each of these things goes against human nature and goes against human reasoning. We met for a a study of a book this week, uh, Some Men, on Friday night, and we were talking a little bit about the ideas of natural revelation and special revelation, that natural revelation is the things that we know because of the world. You can look at the stars and, and, and tree leaves and, and, and cells and learn things about God, that He is powerful, that He's a creator, that He's intelligent. And you can look inside yourself, not not just at the cells, but look inside your own being, and you can see that there's a moral component. We have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience, and that came from somewhere. This this points to God. This is all natural revelation, that it just exists out there. Well, you would never come up with any one of the four things that I just listed there by looking at natural revelation. They are special. They require God to reveal them to us specially, to speak them to us, to tell us about these, to teach us about these things. And so Paul is referring to this gospel revolution that he has just taught us about, taken us on a tour of for the last 11 chapters. And one revolutionary gospel truth is that Christians are motivated by mercy. Motivated by mercy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Motivated by mercy. Let me explain a little bit what I mean here. You've you've all seen the cartoons. You've seen the image, and and you've got it in your mind of maybe a a donkey, and uh, the donkey's being led along by a a carrot that's been affixed to a a stick, hanging out above uh, his head. So he's always walking towards the carrot. And everywhere he goes, the carrot precedes him, and he's just chasing that carrot, right? And also connected with that, there's another way to motivate a donkey, and that's with a stick. No carrot on the end, just a stick, right? Paddle him along, to prod him along. And so you have the image in your mind there of two ways that you can motivate this animal. One, you can entice him, and the other is that you can threaten him with discipline. If he doesn't move fast enough, that's the idea that we have in our minds. And, and a lot of parenting is connected with some of those things and, and motivating people in life. But Paul here is not threatening punishment for disobedience, for not measuring up. He's not, he's not showing us the stick. He's not waving it around so we know there's a prod there. If you're not going fast enough, you need to be prodded along. That's not what he's using to motivate us. That's not what motivates the Christian. He's not using fear of punishment as the motivator. He's not threatening us with a stick. Rather than that image, which I think is an image we carry with us in life in all kinds of ways, we refer quite often to motivating with the carrot or with the stick. 
that idea of enticement, right, a positive discipline or a positive reward versus a negative of the threat of that stick. But the truth is, rather than that image, the truth is more like the idea that God has made us into racehorses. And what do racehorses like to do? They like to run. They want to run. And so I think that's a better image than that carrot and the stick image that by God's mercy, he has placed the Christian into a right relationship with himself. By his mercy, he has done so. That Christian's sins have been done away with. Righteousness that is fully satisfying to God has been credited to his account as if he had done it. It was Jesus who did it, but it's credited to his account, applied to him. The Christian's been adopted as God's own child. A new heart has been placed within that Christian. A new heart that desires to obey God, that is responsive to the call of God, that is responsive to the commands of God. That's a, a heart of flesh that's, that's tender and sensitive, not a heart of stone that is cold and insensitive. These are the mercies of God. This is what He has accomplished for us. And those are motivating for us. The, those mercies, the, the fact of that is motivating for us. That's what Paul gives as a motivation for the Christian life. In other words, the motivation is God's finished work. His finished work. Paul isn't threatening us here with a stick. But we're also not being motivated by a dangling carrot. As if the carrot is out there to keep us moving so that we will keep wanting that thing so that we can have the reward someday. That's what motivates us. We want to get that. We keep following that carrot and, and uh, following it across the finish line. We better keep going that direction. The fact is that Christ has already accomplished it all. If we are Christians, we have already been declared, declared just in Christ, we've already been made spiritually alive. We already have the reward. It's not dangling out there if we just do a little bit more. It's very easy to motivate a person who is uh, anticipating, someone who is thinking about wanting the reward. Just do this a little bit more and you can have that reward. But very often the goalposts get moved, don't they? We see people motivated in life by, well, if you just do this thing, then you'll get that promotion. Or that relationship will work out. Or you'll have this benefit. And so often those goalposts get moved and it turns into a form of slavery. And that's not what we're looking at here. It has already been accomplished. It is already finished. In Christ, here's the key. In Christ, in the gospel, the Christian's spiritual identity has been changed. Has been changed. A new identity has been given. This is not the image of a race that we have to complete within a certain time or that we have to reach a certain distance. This is the image of us already having been made new, having a new identity already with Christ having already accomplished it. That's what's gone on in the first 11 chapters. That's, that's what Paul has been developing for us, is what 
Christ has done, has already finished. And he says, in light of all of that, in light of that bundle, massive bundle of mercy, therefore, therefore, we move into the Christian life. Therefore, we step into what this means practically for how I live, for how I relate to Christians, for how I relate to non-Christians, for how I relate to the government, for how I relate to God. So Paul is transitioning at this point, and he moves to what I've called your appropriate response. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You are a sacrifice. You are a sacrifice. We have the idea in our minds of a sacrifice. We can, we can think very easily, lambs and bulls and goats and, and uh, turtle doves and all that kind of stuff, but God was never ultimately interested in bulls and goats. He was never ultimately concerned about grain offerings. Those things are pictures for us. Ultimately and perfectly, they're pictures of Christ and the sacrifice that He is. But the imagery that Paul is using here is about us being that sacrificial offering. Not to purchase something, but out of gratitude because it has been given to us. And he says the sacrifice is not a little bit of your money. The sacrifice is not a bull or a ram or some of your time. The sacrifice is you. What God was ultimately interested in was redeeming a people for his own possession. He wasn't interested in in having some goats, some bulls, some grain, and some other things brought to the tabernacle or to the temple. Those were a means to an end. That was not his ultimate goal. He, He wants you, not what you might give him. He has no need of anything from us. As if he lacked it. You know, if, if God just had a little bit more money, he could accomplish his purposes. If God just had a little bit more in his, in the talent pool of Christians, he could accomplish it. If he had just a little bit more of our time, then really God could do some stuff. But God doesn't need us. He doesn't need those things from us. He wants us. He wants us as his own possession. He has created us in His image. And He wants us for Himself. So we are the sacrifice. It's not that we just sacrifice some money or we just sacrifice some time or any other thing. It's actually us offering, presenting ourselves. It's the concept of bringing a sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice? It's me. It's all of me. And I want you to notice there, He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This isn't just the idea that I'm somehow spiritually dedicated to God. It's just a spiritual thing. That I pay Him some lip service. That I, uh, you know, I, I claim to be on His side. That I name the name of Christ in some spiritual way, but it doesn't have any impact in my body. I think the reason He uses the term body here is so that we would 
get it through our minds that the sacrifice we're making is not just some spiritual commitment, some philosophical uh, agreement that we can give, but it actually is us. It includes our body. Things we do with our bodies. It includes all of us in our entirety. And so, we are sacrifices. We are the sacrifice that He's calling for here. And, and we are similar and we are different from the Old Testament sacrifices. There are similarities here that, that should come to mind when we think about us as being the sacrifice. There were, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were similar in this way, that they were acceptable to God. We've been made acceptable to God because of what Christ has done. There, there is no more distance between us. There is no more barrier between us or chasm fixed between us and God. In Christ, that chasm has been traversed. And we have union with Him because of Christ. And so in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were to be acceptable and we are acceptable. They were to be free from blemish, free from spot. They were to be set apart to be given to Him. Well, that's a similarity with us. That, that ultimately, we have been declared righteous, we have been forgiven of our sins, and we are acceptable to God. But as we're going to see, He's also at work in our lives so that we grow in our sanctification, so that we are more and more dedicated to Him in our lives, practically speaking, as well as internally and spiritually. But there are differences as well. There are similarities between us and the sacrifice in the Old Testament. There are differences as well. The Old, sac- Old Testament sacrifices were killed and consumed in one way or another. So we are not brought to be killed, praise the Lord. Now, in one sense, we have died with Christ. So we, we have already been put to death. And we've been raised with Him. So we have newness of life now. So we were killed in Him and we were raised in Him. So in that sense, we are put to death. But we are not brought to be put to death in this sense. We are brought to be living sacrifices. Continuing to live. Having life, being perpetually alive before Him. It's not just, you know, determining that this goat is going to be the goat we're going to sacrifice and he's without blemish, he's the right age and and everything else we're going to come and we're going to put him to death and and that's it. And the next year I'll have to do it again. No, those sacrifices have already been paid. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, available to Him for His usage, dedicated to Him. We are living sacrifices and not put to death. But there's another basic difference, and this one you've kind of already picked out, but the Old Testament sacrifices were animals, were grain, were things like that. They They were objects, they were things out there. But the sacrifice we are making to God is a human one. Again, not a human being put to death sacrifice, apart from Christ himself. We are brought as sacrifices that continue to live, but we are human. Not us giving something that then we can step away from. Us actually offering ourselves. It is a human sacrifice in that sense. A living, human, breathing living sacrifice to Him. And this is what Paul calls our fitting 
worship, or I've called our fitting worship. Actually, the word there is, this is your spiritual worship. The, the, it could be translated spiritual, it can be translated fitting or appropriate or logical even. This is the right worship we are to offer. And so I've called it fitting worship. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus called this the greatest commandment. To love God with all of our capacity. Nothing's excluded. You know, love God in your, in your mind, but your affections can be elsewhere. And you're in your body, you don't, you don't have to render any service to God or anything like that. This is, this is a totality. This is all of us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All the way back from the beginning, that's the expectation, is that he would have all of us. Internal, external, all of us. The parts we can see, the parts we can't see. This is our fitting worship to God. When you read in the book of Isaiah, you see very often that the Lord becomes, uh, he, he, he expresses his frustration at the people for trampling his courts. Well, didn't, didn't he want the people to, to come to worship, to come to the temple? He, 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 he says, I, I don't want your bulls and your goats. I don't want your sacrifices. Well, does, didn't God tell them to do those things? His point is, when he says, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, his point is, your heart is far from me. You're doing the external stuff, and you don't love me at all. Yeah, you show up to church all the time. You, uh, you, you offer your sacrifices all the time. You, you, you cross every T and dot every I. You do the things, and you couldn't care less about me. The fitting worship, Christian worship, is the worship from all of us. All of me and my being to God. Not just external. I wrote a big check this week. I was disobedient and everything else, so I doubled, the, I doubled my gift and that, that'll make up for it. Or something like that. Or I show up all the time. I'm there all the time. No, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, the entirety of us is the sacrifice that he's asking for. That's our fitting Worship And that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what parts of us have been redeemed in Romans 1 through 11? Well, the internal parts, of course. Who we are, actually. We've been made new. We've been transferred from Adam and all that he earned for us, that we gladly followed after. We've been transferred from him into Christ and all that he earned for us. He, he actually gave us a new heart, a new want to. So that now we, we obey Him from the heart. We want to. It's, it's a willing obedience that the Christian gives to God. He's, he's renewed us inside. And we anticipate even the renewal of our external parts. We sit here in bodies that are falling apart to one degree or another. As we are getting older, and things don't work the way they used to, and some of us have to have things surgically replaced and whatnot. But there will come a time in the end when we will be raised in a new body, physically raised in a new body. 
a resurrection body, when we will be fully and completely and finally redeemed. The redemption that he gives us is all of us. And it makes sense that our return of sacrifice, of thanksgiving, of praise and worship to him would be from all of us. And so he says we are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. This is our appropriate worship. This is our logical worship that we return to God. But he continues, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We, we are shaped by something. Okay, so we've just talked about all of these things that God has accomplished for us and talked about the fact that we are to be living sacrifices, giving all of ourselves to Him, not just a part, not just some time, not just some money or something like that, but giving all of us to Him. So then everything should be great. We just give that sacrifice and we'll be done. But Paul recognizes that we still live in this world that will battle against us that will shape us, that will work against us and stand against us in our offering of ourselves to God. And so he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We are shaped by something while we are in this life. We are shaped by something. The fact that we have been redeemed doesn't mean that we are pristine and ready uh, without, without any further work needed. We can just pass right through life and never be affected. No, we've been redeemed. We've been declared righteous before Him. We are fully and completely acceptable to Him, but we are still here. For most people, He doesn't save us and take us immediately to glory. For most people, He saves us and we stay here amongst each other and amongst other sinners who don't even believe in God. In this world, we are shaped by something. And He says, first of all, He refers to conformity to this world. He says, do not be conformed to this world. That's the idea of being squished into a mold. This is what happens, by the way, when we're not paying attention. Conformity to this world. It's something that happens to us. And the world is more than happy to squish us into that mold. More than happy to exert that pressure when we're not looking, when we're not paying attention, when we're not thinking about it, we're just going about our merry way. Meanwhile, the world is exerting its influence to squish us into that mold. This is what happens to us when we're not paying attention. You, you, you come to think like the world. By the way, this, you were saved out of the world, so that's the thought process you had before you were redeemed. And so it's pretty easy to go back to that thought process or to retain it where we think like the world. We value what the world values. Our, our, our understanding of reality is nearly indistinguishable from the understanding of reality by a non-Christian. This is conformity to this world. And we come to act like the world. I had a professor in, uh, in college who was, he was our, our Greek professor and he was a, a great, great man and he mentored his students. He didn't just teach us Greek, but he would mentor us. And I remember one of the things that he said, he said, he said, uh, he was fond of saying, you know, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. 
he would say that. And I, and I appreciated that. And he, he went further and he said, you know, for, for a person who moves away from God's Word, stops reading the Bible, he said, he, I give them 28 days before they have imploded their life. Now, I, 28 days, I don't know. Maybe that was hyperbole. I, I don't, but that's what he said. And I thought, well, that's powerful. You know, how, even if the number isn't 28 days, when someone closes the Bible and moves away from the Bible, what's going to happen to their thinking? What's going to happen to their influence? What's going to happen to the way they look at the world? It's going to revert right back to those around them. Revert right back to the way it was before they came to Christ. They're going to move back to thinking in those ways, to acting in those ways. And so he, he gave his number of 28 days, and I've not, I've not tested that. But, but the fact is that conformity to this world is a, a reality. And he says, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. We are shaped by something. We can either sit passively by and have our lives and our minds molded and formed by the forces of this world, or we can actively renew our minds. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You can be conformed, you can be squished into that mold, you can be shaped like the world that you were saved out of, and so it's real easy to revert back to that, 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 that you still have that sin nature, and it's real easy to revert back to that. And that's what happens when you're, when you're not looking. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I want to give two very brief answers. First, we renew our minds by reading and learning and meditating on God's Word. And this is what uh, my Greek professor was talking about. Keeping God's Word open in front of us as we read it, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we have our minds shaped by God's Word. God's Word is, is a revelation of how God thinks. And so we are exposing ourselves to that. We are training our minds to think the way God thinks. We are renewing our minds, first of all, simply by subjecting ourselves repeatedly by reading, by study, by learning, by meditating on God's Word. And secondly, and more specifically, we renew our minds by focusing on and meditating on what God has revealed to us in the first 11 chapters of Romans, namely the Gospel. I don't just mean read Romans 1 through 11 over and over and over again, though that would be a very great exercise. But I mean the Gospel, Focusing on the gospel, God's word, but specifically how God has worked in saving sinners. As we subject our minds to that, as we think about it again, as we work through it, as we ponder those truths, as we commit ourselves to meditating on the gospel, there's a, a renewal, there's a change that happens in our minds. And a renewed mind leads to a transformed life. Renewed mind means a transformed life. We live what we believe. We live what we believe. And when you see someone who has claimed Christ for years, I read about someone again this week who was well-known and pretty well-known involved in Christian ministry and, and wrote uh, at least a book and, and whatnot. 
now claiming not even to be a Christian. You can see, over the period of time, a person can convince themselves that they're a Christian for a period of time, but if they're not, ultimately, if they don't truly believe the gospel, it will show itself eventually. It will reveal itself because we, we live what we believe. If, if you, I, I, saw, I saw a plot for a book, and I haven't read the book, so I can't recommend it. I can't even remember what it's called, so I wouldn't even be able to recommend it. But the idea was, these scientists, this is a fiction book, uh, these scientists discovered that in 12 years, this giant, you know, meteor or whatever was going to destroy the entire earth. 12 years, and they checked, and they rechecked, and they had it calculated, and they knew. How would you live differently? If you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that in 12 years, everything would be gone, well, that would shape your life. You would change what you did. You'd change the way you invested your life, your money, relationships. You'd change everything. If you truly believe that were the case, that in 12 years, we are all going to be destroyed, that would shape how you lived your entire life. Now contrast that with a person who didn't believe that. Yeah, I've heard that, but I don't really think so. The person who doesn't believe that that's coming, what would they change? Nothing. Nothing. Or they would learn how to capitalize on everyone else fearing this 12-year destruction, right? Because we live what we believe. Romans has been teaching us the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Romans has been teaching us about what we have in Christ. And the person who believes that she has to meet a standard in order for God to be satisfied her with her will live according to that standard. Will 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 live according to what she believes, always believing that carrot is out there and that stick is behind her. And she'll live that life of slavery, always working, always working, and, and never resting. Got to do more. Got to do better. Got to do more. Got to do better. Never coming to a place of being at rest. Never having a cessation of labor. Never being able to have a Sabbath at all. Because you got to do more. you got to do more. She will labor under a load of work and demands to try to get a smile from God instead of a frown. And she'll run and she'll run like on a treadmill. And it's easy to get a person like this to respond. It would be easy for me as a preacher to preach like that, to get you to do something. If I wanted you to give more money, I could preach that way. Or if I wanted you to stop doing this thing or begin to act like that, all I have to do is couch it in these terms if this is what you believed. If, if you believed that, that I've got to run harder on this treadmill, I've got to chase down that carrot, it would be easy for me to manipulate you. And what Paul has taught is just the opposite. What Paul has taught us is that Christ has accomplished it all. He has finished it from beginning to end. And so, Christian, how are you going to improve on what Christ did? Can you? Can you improve on how Jesus ran his race? Can you improve on the righteousness that Jesus himself gave? Is there that little bit lacking that only you can provide? Because Jesus was inadequate. No, his, his life 
was adequate, was fully righteous. And all of that righteousness, all of that having satisfied God, all of that smile from God is credited to your account by faith. And the full payment for your sins, not just 99.8% or something like that, Jesus' sacrifice was full payment for your sin. Paid already for you. So that your sin is forgiven. Your sin has been placed upon Him. Punished in Him. And here you are. Enjoying God's smile. You have the reward. It has been accomplished. It has been completed. And Paul says, that is our motivation. That is how we are to live. That is how we are to train our minds to think. Don't be conformed to this world and thinking the way the world does. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I said we live what we believe. So what does having your mind renewed by understanding and believing what Christ has accomplished for you, what does that do to your life? Well, as a Christian, you, you have understanding now. You, you comprehend, you have right down in your soul that you have a new standing with God. That You live a life of gratitude, not to accomplish, not to achieve, not to attain. You live a life that's motivated out of gratitude because God has shown you, has given to you, has poured out upon you lavishly His mercies. And so you live a life that is motivated by gratitude to God. You don't have to earn or achieve anything with God. You, you look upon Him as what He actually is, Christian. Your loving and indulgent Father. No longer the distant judge. No longer the distant creator who's out there somewhere assessing your deeds and you, and you better measure up. He has made you His child. He looks upon you, Christian, as his child whom he adores. He has a smile for you because there is nothing between you and him. Sin has been dealt with. Righteousness has been given in its place. And you, Christian, look at him not as some cold and distant master that you've, that you've got to do the right things in order to make him smile. This is your father. He holds you on his lap. He smiles at you. And so you want to obey Him. And so you test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are approving God's will. That now, it's no longer, when we look at the Bible, when we look at commands, when we look at what, 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 how we are to live, it's no longer as if we've received you know, some some postmarked letter from God who's the creator all the way out there and he's assessing how we're going to do and here here's your list of stuff to accomplish, your, your task list that you've got to get done. Whether you want to or not, just do this stuff to please God. That's not our situation. We have this loving relationship with the Father where he's made us his own. We are his own children. And now when he says, and by the way, this is what I want you to do. We say, okay. He's given us a new heart that wants to obey Him. We approve 
what He tells us to do. It's not a cold and distant list that we may or may not like. You know, I like the part about uh, being honest. Uh, that's okay, but but uh, you know, not you know, loving my neighbor. Well, ah, that is really really hard. <laughs> I'd rather just be angry at him. I'd rather just be you know bitter. I don't like that. Well, no, as Christians, we've been made new and given a new life. And when our loving Father holding us on His lap says, I want you to be honest, because I'm honest, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, we come to love that command. We come to approve that command. We agree with God in our heart, that is the right thing to do. Not only is that the right thing to do, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. We approve God's will. We want to do it. He has changed us. We have an entirely new relationship as His children. Wanting to do what our dad says. Do you prefer doctrine? Or do you prefer application? The fact is, we live what we believe. And so we all must be committed to both. The doctrine we study is teaching us what to believe. And the life we live stems out of, flows out of, what we truly believe. And so these verses are that hinge moment where we have an eye on both. We have a hand on both this doctrine and here's how we live in light of that doctrine. And specifically, here's the gospel. Here's what's been accomplished for us. And here's how we live in light of that. Because we still live in this world that would beat us up. We still live in this world that would fight against us. That would, that would force us into that mold like itself. But we live what we believe. And so together, in the last two years we've spent focusing on this, but let's do this together as we move forward. We must keep in mind what has been accomplished on our behalf. What Christ has done. What truths uh, are ours. What realities are ours because of Christ and His sacrifice. When we keep those in mind, we want to obey this gracious Father. And so when we read His commands, we say, yes, that's right and good. That's what I want to do. I want to obey Him. This is a change of mind that may be greater, perhaps, than, than I've been able to communicate this morning. But when you, when you see God as a distant judge, as one who tells you what to do, lays down the standard, regardless of what you think, because He's the Creator and He gets to do that, and, by the way, He's keeping a tally of, of when you don't measure up to that, and by the way, that, that's where everyone who is not a Christian, that's the category they're in. That they have a standard to meet. That standard is perfection. And if you're in here and you don't know Christ, that's where you are. God is out there, and, and He has given you His instructions. He wrote them down in the book, and by the way, He's, he's, he's given you witness in your heart, so that you know what is right and you know what is wrong. And you also know about yourself that you don't even measure up to what you believe to be right. Not always. And so you have guilt before Him. You're, you're distant. You're at odds with Him. 
And a lot of Christians live that same way. A lot of Christians think, well, I've got to do this to please God. I've got to do something to add to. And that, that switch that happens here in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one that we all need to make. Understanding that we have been made God's children and in Christ He is fully happy with us. His working has not only been outward, it has not only been judicial in the sense that He has adopted us and now we are a part of His family, but He has also worked, with, worked within us so that He's made us new to give us a heart that responds to Him. And so, yes, we obey. And no, we don't lie. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. And we do what He says because we want to. Because He is our loving Father who has already saved us. And now He smiles on us. And His smile warms our heart and causes us to want to obey Him. And so that is what is in mind as we move through the subsequent chapters of Romans as he will continue to spell out in different areas what obedience looks like, what it looks like to be a Christian, never losing what is that motivation, the mercies of God, and what has already been accomplished. So is doctrine important? 100%. Is application or implication important? 100%. We cannot have one without the other. And Paul ties them together beautifully in these two verses that are, I hope, going to set the tone as we move forward to look at these practical passages throughout the book of Romans. And my prayer is that as we do this, we will keep our eyes fixed on Christ, our Savior, in whom we have already God's smile. Let's pray. Father, we love the gospel. We love this truth of what Jesus has done for us. We love the fact that he obeyed because we have not. We love the fact that he died on that cross, though innocent, as the sacrifice, the perfect and full and complete sacrifice for us. We love the fact that you raised him from the dead. And those things are credited to us. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is life and peace with you. There is a smile from you that motivates us as we move forward in life. I pray, Father, that you would draw many to yourself, even this morning, those who are on the, the outside there, those who have God as a distant reality, who is examining their life and they come up short, and the payment for that is going to be heavy. It's going to be eternal destruction. And I pray that you would draw them to the Savior. That they, like we, would know your smile. The smile of our loving Father, who has already given everything to adopt us as your own. May we go out looking on that smile. And may you work in our hearts such that we respond to that smile. We want to do what you would have us do. Because you have saved us so graciously. May Christ be lifted up. 
in our own hearts this week. May the gospel be on our minds and on our lips this week. And may you work in us that we would not be conformed to this world, squished into that mold, but transformed by the renewing of our minds as we contemplate what you have accomplished. We rejoice in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. There will be a family up here to pray with you uh, if, if you want to pray with him. Otherwise, God bless you all and you are dismissed.